Hi, this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. You're listening to the Max and Murphy podcast. We're without Jared Murphy from City Limits this week as he's away on a much-deserved summer break. Uh, but I'm here with Alexis Grinnell, Democratic strategist and writer on gender and politics, and Dr. Christina Greer, professor of political science at Fordham University. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ben. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about um, representation in politics, uh, people running for office, and their identities and what's wrong with the term identity politics and all sorts of things related to that. Um, so let's start with the mayor's race. We have incumbent Mayor Bill de Blasio. His main challenger is Nicole Maliotakis running on the conservative line and the Republican line and seeking to become the first woman to be mayor of New York City. Um, so there's some right away, some sort of gender questions and issues there. Um, so what are you guys thinking as you look at this race? Um, it's a little bit peculiar in some ways, um, but what are what are some of your thoughts as you look at, at this? You know, it's interesting. When, there are oftentimes Republican female candidates running for office, and uh, they enter the foray as, in some ways as fundamentally feminist figures, uh, even though they do not necessarily have a feminist politics. And that's sort of the inescapable reality of being a woman running for office, is that, like Nicole Mialiotakis, she's not exactly a favorite of the big boys out in Staten Island. They find her a little pushy, a little mm -hmm. young, a little annoying. There have been, you know, uh, sort of red flags around her for years. Well, she's not married, she doesn't have kids. Um, and that's the kind of sexism that women put up with all the time, regardless of party. Um, and she's... Uh, you know, so that, that the, the idea that she's overcome that to become the party favorite is certainly inspiring that she's pushed forward and made herself into the standard bearer, beat out Paul Massey, who's basically a Romney Republican, a nice white guy self-funder who didn't really understand what he was doing. And she was a shark and she completely demolished, demolished him. Yeah. him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, awesome. That's really great. She's got a female campaign manager, Letitia Romero, very smart, longtime party person on Staten Island. Um, I, I love seeing that, right? On the other hand, there's really nothing about her agenda from a feminist point of view that in any way can beat Bill de Blasio's record or his ideology. Mm -hmm. And I have a real problem with the way, um, and she's very smart, I have a lot of respect for her, but she's out there telling tall tales about sex crimes and rape yeah. statistics that I think she knows are wrong. Um, and by using an issue like sexual violence to pull sensational headlines and advance herself, um, she's harming the cause and concerns of people who are actual survivors and victims of some sexual violence. Right. And she's staying silent when somebody like Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, you know, pulls in men's rights groups talk about revising campus sexual assault statutes. Mm -hmm. So uh, you just, you can't go out there screaming about how sex crimes are up when they're not, and then say nothing when the federal government is systematically and programmatically trying to deny women's rights. Christina, See, what do you think? Yeah. yeah, and that's why I find her so problematic, right? On Because what you laid out as far as the gender perspective when it comes to, say, these sex crimes, it's also an underlying racialized yep. perspective that she's putting forth, which also isn't true. So by saying, you know, women are being raped and, you know, everyone's being robbed, it's like that's that Giuliani Republican nonsense, that Donald Trump yep. nonsense, which is implicitly saying blacks and Latinos are taking over your city and it's not safe. And so going back to that 1990s playbook of just racist Republican politics in New York City is what she is subscribing to. So 
already she is problematic on the gender piece and this racial piece and then you know to play this kind of um the child of immigrants i was like and you support donald trump who literally is saying that you know immigrants should go and you know clearly yes your parents are i guess considered white immigrants in the eyes of donald trump and many people in your party but that's so just i think it's really gutter to be quite honest and, and so i mean yeah she's a shark anyone you know i think so frustrating, especially when it comes to women, they sort of discount women, right? If your name ends up on a ballot, you're doing something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you aren't as dumb as some people may think you are. So clearly, the fact that she's gotten rid of <laughs> I mean, she saw an opportunity and right. here, and jumped in, yeah, and immediately... And to, and to her credit, she's running a very strategic campaign that's very efficient, and she's making every, taking every opportunity she sees. They're not all good opportunities. Yes. Right. They're not all the right opportunities. I couldn't agree more. She is playing a '90s Republican racist playbook. I call it the, great, the greatest well, hits. It's the greatest hits. It's, the greatest the hits. it's shocking to me because it's clearly just that's not what works. We saw it with Loda. Right. Massey got nowhere, basically doing yeah. that. Although he was trying to go towards the middle a little bit, right. but he wasn't. He but had all is, sorts of problems. We don't need to go too far. When a woman into his says point. it, right? When a woman says that like women are being raped. It's, it, it plays a little differently, and right. I think that she's tapped into that. Yeah, I believe her first video ad, I don't know that you know it was like a TV ad buy, but it was up online, was basically saying, you know, the mayor's claiming the city's safer. You know, women, do you feel safer? Right. And, and citing well, some of these stats. She's also the face of a white woman saying, I don't feel safe. Yeah. That resonates not just with white women, but especially with white men, because they're thinking about their wives and their daughters. I mean, like, that's a so real talk about this for specific a second. strategic Right. Move. Uh, there's a lot of strategy here to break down for sure. Um, but talk for a second about this. This. So on one hand, she's a woman running for office. That's a huge part of how I'm people are going to. She broke through the party sexism to be the standard bearer. That's yes. what I mean. Yes. Yeah. On the one hand, yes. Right, and Success. she can't. She and she can't escape being viewed as a woman running for office. And some of you know, you and I, Alexis, talked about that when I wrote a little article where I interviewed her about this and you know it was clear she had just again Massey had just dropped out she had just become the presumptive nominee she'd been in the race for like a month you know but I asked her you know are you thinking at all about becoming the first female mayor and she clearly really hadn't much and she said oh at some point I'm sure I'll put forward a platform that deals with women's issues but you know she sort of it sounded like you know sort of just talking to someone who um d doesn't think about these things very much which may be okay that that she can you know approach it that way. She said the best thing we can do for women is electing a, a female mayor. Um, so on one hand, she's she's gonna, she's a woman running for office. She's going to be seen that way. But on the other hand, she's not necessarily talking about things that. that yeah, th but this is the debate about representative and like descriptive versus substantive representation. Exactly, mm -hmm. and like. I mean, I don't think we. First of all, we know that actually women don't vote as a block. There's no such thing as a women's vote. Like it does not exist. Mm -hmm. We well, saw we that. No, the white women election. vote for yeah. right. Like white women vote. You know, histor historically Republican in a presidential. But um, so playing to the like, there, there's no, like, okay, so. My attitude, I, I want to see more women elected to office. That does not mean I vote for the woman in the race every time. Because the woman in the race isn't always the candidate who's going to have the best interests, in my view, uh, women in mind. Um, I did not vote for Chris Quinn. Uh, she had sidelined a paid leave bill. That was a pretty big deal. I didn't like a bunch of her other politics. I voted for Bill de Blasio, um, who I think is a very loud and proud feminist mayor. 
who has put his money where his mouth is and rolled out an agenda consistently that advances a gender equality um, framework that's more than... I mean, I, I, I have to say, like, it's Christmas in July from a gender perspective with mm -hmm. this administration all the time. And that's really important and really great. And there was Nicole Maliotakis, again, like, certain respect for her as an assemblywoman and having broken through as the party favorite. But she's not putting an agenda forward that is going to advance women specifically. And so what's yeah it's like well, what's the point you know i'd much right. rather what, what vote get for out someone substantively i mean i see this i talk about this in gender realms and also racial terms you know it's like i'd rather vote for you know an old white man who has progressive politics than sort of some young black woman who's a whippersnapper who's you know going to be antithetical to everything i believe in so like descriptively someone may look like me but substantively that's who i'm voting for right so when you know republicans are really great at getting women in office. I mean, they've got women okay. in Congress, they've got, you know, in state houses, state houses I mean, because they're, they're running all these state houses. But, you know, like, look at the women in Congress, you know, the, the, the Republican senators now, two of them are speaking up. And so they're, you know, the champions. But for years, you had all these Republican women, they didn't do anything for women's issues. It was Democratic women who did it. They were the ones who showed up at the table descriptively and substantively. But you constantly have Republican women who were just like, well, I mean, I'm a woman, but, you know, I don't, I don't really think about these things. And we know that when it comes to legislation, it's usually women who are elected to office who actually care about the vast majority so we, of these things. Just That's real, why just Bill de Blasio, I think, is a unicorn, because he's actually Right. a male elected official who's putting women's issues and a, front and center. And a unicorn who I think we need to like talk about within the continuum of like what's the role of men in yeah. feminist yeah. politics. Right. And you know, I've written about sort of comparing and contrasting the various like men in power in New York State and the way in which Bill de Blasio departs from the script in pretty subtle but significant ways. You know, he doesn't pat himself on the back for having like women all around him. He's pretty actually dry about it. He's like, yeah. We looked at the population statistics. Women are half the population, so we... And some of them are kind of smart. And some so of them are kind of smart. we do this? So we figured we should hire they them. They should be half our commissioners. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't make announcements about the, you know, tampons in, in schools with, like, pink bunting everywhere. He doesn't start a party for women. He doesn't um, talk down to women in this, you know, it's it's... There are certain, like, major policy achievements that are super significant, and I think like we're just he should get a ton of credit for but they're also subtle stylistic things like he doesn't get up in front of an audience full of women and talk about his mother and his sisters mm, that's right. like something every male politician every male politician does but i think also a lot of male politicians only talk to women when they're talking about women's issues and it's like you know what women know what these issues are why don't you talk to men the same way you know like white politicians will go in front of black folks and it's like here's how i feel about civil rights agendas and this is what oh, yeah, i'm doing exactly. to, to advance right. you know racial equality it's like don't talk to black folks we know this go talk to white people so i think that is really important and I don't see going back to the original question I don't see Maliotakis as useful in that realm um, nope. so for me you know, and I think she's fine with that I think she yeah, you know, she would it. even and say she's right. also fine with supporting a white supremacist president I mean okay so right. those to me are really important issues as mm -hmm. well and deal breakers yeah. So I've no, yeah, and what you what you both said about the mayor, you know, I've noticed that that he's very comfortable. You know, he's 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 largely very comfortable right. sort of talking about anything that we would often describe as quote unquote a women's issue. You which, know, he, uh, which we which should I, never, I, which we should not that's, say. That's fine. But what but sometimes we can't avoid yeah. saying, well, what are some of those things, right? Sure. And we're talking about healthcare. We're talking yeah. about equal pay. We're talking about paid leave. We're talking Child about care. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, early education, you know, I mean, the pre-K in some ways was, you know, pre-K is absolutely a like get or women back pronged. into the workforce yeah. 
it's a workforce development program. Well, it also, you know, it's like, let's be clear, a lot of women stay in horrible situations because of financial burdens, right? And so, like, having sort of... Horrible, like, relational... Relationship, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of... Domestic situations. normative domestic mm -hmm. situations. So I think, you know, having some sort of pay equity really helps in a lot of realms. But I feel like, you know, I don't know, Alexis, if you've ever written about this, but yeah, I'm fascinated by his, by de Blasio's relationship with... Uh, Melissa Mark Viverito. You know, here is a very powerful, very strong, very smart woman of color. And I never got this sense that it was like, oh, aren't you cute? Yeah, and she's also petite, like just physically in stature, and he's very tall. Like, I never yeah. got this sense that he's like, well, aren't you? Hey, yeah. little lady, he's thanks for coming. And that's he's a very, huge, like, that's he's huge. It's, 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 it's almost invisible right, in some ways. That's actually a really good way of putting it. Like, this is what I mean when I say there's sort of invisible things. Like, it's the things he doesn't do that we co we've come to expect from politicians who, like, have to make a joke where they're, when they're in a room full of women. Mm -hmm. Like, ha ha. Or I'm comment on a woman looking at our president. Right, he can't be in a room with a woman without commenting on her hair, her body, or her age in some mm -hmm. right some fashion. Or I will say so. I do want to bring up though. You know, the New York Times wrote this article about women leaving the administration. You know, one of my first reactions to it was, I see the mayor sort of speaking condescendingly to just about everybody. I don't know that <laughs> He's I see. An evil opportunity, you know, right, so, it's not you know, gender specific. So I don't know. I, I've raised the question because, again, I can't speak for women. I can say what I have observed, which is, you know, he can be pretty condescending to just about everybody. I don't know that he does that more so to women than to men. I'm not behind the scenes at all his meetings and his upper level cabinet, you know, meetings and things like that. And he's, you know, lost maybe a few more women than men, as the article pointed out. Um, I don't know if anybody, you know, sees anything there. You know, that was sort yeah. of my reaction was... But, but again, I'm, I'm not going to speak for anybody, but like, oh, I've seen him basically, you know, because the article touched on that he can be condescending, you mm -hmm. know, and I was like, well, well I think, you know, part of the, the, the thing <laughs> is, right, I think he's an equal opportunity offender when mm -hmm. it comes to that. I just think the problem is he doesn't have a great relationship with the press. And so some of these stories, I just roll my eyes because I'm just sort of like, you guys clearly don't have a good relationship. Like, have we looked at the data? Every single administration loses upper level people. Why? Because it's a 28-hour-a-day job. And, like, yeah, I'm sure he's a little brash and brusque, you know, with his top advisors because he's like, we've got the scrutiny and I don't have a great relationship with the press. So that, to me, was kind of like a nothing story. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the whole, like, he takes naps. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in naps. I've been <laughs> tweeting about it. And I was just like, right, because you're running New York City. Like, you know, and I just thought that that was trying to make it sort of like... Right. Gender, I, mm -hmm. I thought it was genderized in, in a certain way of just sort of like that's something that like yeah. not strong men do. I was like, maybe if more men took naps, then we wouldn't have some of the nonsense that we have. Mm -hmm. So I think, honestly, for me, it just seems like it's more about his bad relationship with the press, which I think is partially his fault or predominantly his largely. fault. Largely. <laughs> <Like, okay, laughs> if I may. Partially, predominantly, yeah. largely, mostly, mm -hmm. fundamentally his fault, mm -hmm. right? Um and so some of those stories that are coming out, and like, granted, I'm not in those inner meetings, but I was just like, really? Doesn't everyone leave administrations mm -hmm. after a year or two years? Because it's just grueling work. So let's let's um, shift a little bit to the city council. You mentioned Melissa Margarito. She's term limited out. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a new speaker um, right now. Looks like mostly male city council members in contention there or all now that Jalissa Ferreras Copeland is also leaving the city council unexpectedly and early. But then we also have, um, along with Ferreras Copeland's seat, um, we have about 10 open seats, several of 
which are held by women and many are in jeopardy of becoming male seats. And currently in the 51 member council, we have 13 women. I mean, we're talking about a real disparity here. What do you make of that? Alexis, you said something interesting that I wanted to make sure to, to flag for this part of the conversation, which is sort of, I want more women in office, but I'm still going to evaluate you know, case by case. Mm -hmm. And Melissa Mark Vivrito herself has made that argument when mm -hmm. she's backed a male candidate over a female mm -hmm. candidate. Yeah, I don't think, um, I have, I don't think there's in, in any way a conflict as a feminist, as somebody who wants to see women advance into public office to vote for a man, if that is indeed the mm -hmm. best candidate who's going to advance the interests that, that are on my agenda. Um, there's like a real crisis of female leadership in the city council that we're about to, you know, run into. It's pretty disturbing. Um, and a lot of it stems from the fact that uh, we have these sort of switcheroos taking place between state lawmakers and uh, term limited city council members. So state lawmakers see a big payday. They're like, hey. Literally a big payday. Literally. Almost oh, 100%. Right. Percent. I make 79.5 and I have to commute to Albany. Mm -hmm. So this, I, there's about to be an open seat. I can basically have a walk into a hundred and forty. Seven thousand yeah, dollar yeah. a year mm -hmm. job. So keep it local, and uh, you know, not live, mm -hmm. not not break a sweat. Yeah, and that's that's really a problem with county leadership not supporting female candidates. So what we see, for instance, in the Bronx, right? Ruben Diaz, state senator for a long time, running to replace. Um, Annabelle Palma, right. and uh, County gave him a you know big slap on the back mm -hmm. to go do that. Uh, Roberta Rodriguez, an assemblyman running uh, to replace Melissa Mark Viverito. She's got a district that's in the Manhattan and the Bronx. Big pat on the back from the Bronx County. Uh, it really helps when County lines up behind you and puts all their resources there. And you already have name recognition, so it's it's a right. double win. Yeah, so, I mean, that's basically a done deal. Right, so counties aren't doing anything. They're basically, when you play this musical chairs game between the state and the city, you're empowering people further who are already in power, and they are predominantly male. Somewhat undercutting what I said before is that Melissa Mark Viverita is backing a staff staffer of hers, Diana, an aide, Diana Ayala, who um, is a woman, and, and Melissa is is going hard to see her replace her instead of Assemblymember Rodriguez. Yeah. So that's a very interesting right. one to watch for a variety of reasons. Right. But you said it, Ruben Diaz Sr. may very well take a seat being held by a woman right now where there is a strong female candidate. There's other examples as well. Well, I think, you know, Melissa has made the case, like, I'm supporting this woman because she's qualified, mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, a lot of women, we're not voting just because of ovaries. We're actually voting because we're evaluating candidates and saying this woman is actually more qualified than the man she's running against. But, I mean, you know, as Alexis and I have said, there are, for women who fundamentally believe in the agenda of advancement of smart women who can do more for others, sometimes that comes in the package of a man. And it's substantively how we're evaluating these things because all these quote-unquote women's issues are just political issues that we all need to worry about. Like, you know, me not getting paid the same as my male counterparts affects every single member of my family, not just me. That's not a women's issue. That's, you know, that's a community issue. Mm -hmm. So how worried should we be about, let's say there's eight women in the 51-seat city council? I mean, what does that mean? And, and, and the speaker is a male next. I mean, let's just, you know, predict that. It might not happen, but it's likely. Uh, eight, ten, you know, women in a 51-member body and the leader is a is a man might not matter as much if the folks, you, as you say, have the right priorities, but how much does it matter and how alarmed should, should the city be? 
I think we really need to evaluate them on, you know, what is, what's the substantive work that they're going to do if they're going to get in there and just not really pay attention to some of the issues that are of concern to us, then that's highly problematic. I think, you know, to try and look at it from a, a bright side, that gives us four years to strategize and think about some substantive candidates that we can put forth. Cause there is an effort, yeah. Well, I was going to say, that's also when, in the next cycle, we're going to have many more seats up. Huge mm-hmm. openings. This is, this is 30 like, plus, yeah. Right, this is a relatively small Yeah, So, cycle. and we can see it as a test case, right? And so, on a positive note, we can kind of take some lessons from the 2017 election, strategize, plan, cultivate in the next four years, convince some strong women who are possibly mm-hmm. on the sidelines or who have been pushed to the sidelines to actually get back in the game. I mean, you know the data better than I, but, you know, when women don't win that first race, it's much harder to get them mm. to come back to the table a second and a third time. So if we can get some of those women on the sidelines to be in the pipeline and ready to go in 2021 when we have, what, 30 yeah. seats open, then I think we're in a... I believe most of Mark Vera launched something eyeing 2021. I don't know where that's gone or where it'll go, but I think, you know, there was something <laughs> about... <laughs> we'll see. So, uh, but about the 2021 elections. And again, as you indicated, Alexis, we're going to see just another flood of state assembly and members and senators yeah. at that next cycle. So that's where... Right. The candidates have to be cultivated and pr- pr- and something uh, I want to I want to say about that. I and and I think it's important to make this distinction. Um, there is not. Chrissy's absolutely right that like women, often, um, who have run need to sort of be talked back into running. They're a little less dogged than male counterparts. However, I want to be really clear about motivation. Sometimes that gets construed as a confidence gap. And that's often attributed to very good work that was done by Jennifer Lawless, um, who has done great work on uh, research into um, gender, confidence, and ambition. However, um, and this sometimes gets turned into a uh, rah-rah to support women and, and just convince them to run and, and about all about yeah, how... It's like run for... Run, yeah, run where but like women are what. actually <laughs> making rational decisions and assessing the obstacles in their path that are real. And I always find it a little tricky when I go to these various conferences that are all pushing the need to like just like pull yourself We're going to have 10,000 women running by 2020. Right. For, for what? But but <laughs> also when they're pushing this like, you know, women need to like see themselves as leaders. I'm like, you know what? We do. We do. It's mostly everyone else. And so let's not put structural sexism on women to just like get more confident and like succeed over but like some kind of uh, like isolation as if they're they're living in isolation. This this analysis, it's almost like, you know, you, if let's say you decide to go to graduate school, you think, how much does it cost? What's the commute like? And what is this going to do for my career? These are like rational questions to assess when running for, for office as well. But you go to some of these like events where it's like, women have to be asked seven times. They don't see themselves as leaders. We need to just like step up and feel it. It's like, you know what? I think it's completely normal to be like... Right. Is this a campaign that's going to harm or hurt me? We know that women face totally different barriers. And so I think that goes back to the earlier point, though. It's like the structural piece isn't necessarily on the women to to run. I mean, I think some women do need convincing because it's like it's about your hair and your nails and whether or not you have kids or don't have kids or whatever. But like dismantling, you know, the district leaders, right? Dismantling these county, you know, community boards and the county leaders structure. Like that's actually the structure that's preventing people from getting into 
city council and all these other seats and the state house because there are so many of these I would call them like Tammany bosses who actually have women doing their bidding on these mm -hmm. lower levels as mm -hmm. well these are women who are you know say a district leader but they're not into cultivating female leadership of the next line oh yeah I mean we all we always see a very smart male politician will figure out how to deploy women in service to his agenda Women's Equality Party. <laughs> I was going to say, was I think like, we have one at the top of the like, state. Case yeah. in point. Uh, it, was, it was a sight to see, you know, four years ago when the women leaders of the state rallied behind Andrew Cuomo mm -hmm. against the only woman running for governor. Yeah. It was, it, except for, you know, name check Zenaida Mendez, then president of now New York State, who was the only notable the only. institutional feminist to and say, guess what? you know what? And she's no longer with now. And guess right? what? She's she been squeezed the system. out. She got right. squeezed out of now. Right. So yeah. that's that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have, you know, Kathy Hochul. I mean, so that Kathy Hochul, Christine Quinn led the charge. And now that party, you know, we should say is basically gone. It's well, nothing. It's, I mean, it, it was, was never a, it was anything. A cynical we can't even say it's defunct right. now because Alexis it was, it has was written never a lot a about this. Yeah, people can look up But now we have yeah. this council on um, women council and on girls. Women and, girls yeah. um, and I'm just not I'm, I'm, I'm curious on the timing on that. You know, two women are rumored to be running for governor, Stephanie Minor and Cynthia Nixon, and now we have this council. Mm. But I mean, that's, but isn't that the Cuomo way, right? Isn't it to throw the lowest hanging fruit scraps at the masses and some people lap it up and they're just like well he cares about women it's like really uh, he cares about our women our women we're in our last <laughs> ooh that's a whole column please wait <laughs> that I need we're to in our last couple minutes here with Christina Greer and Alexis Grinnell um, so we did want to touch on one city council race where um, it is Jalissa Ferreira's Copeland's seat She's leaving. She's decided. I mean, this is a whole, this is part of this discussion, but we won't go into all the detail now. She basically decided she was in the running to be the next speaker. She's the finance chair. She had another term she could run for, and she made a personal decision to leave the city council, not run for re-election, move with her family, basically for family reasons. Leaving that whole discussion aside, unless you want to say something about it, please do. We have basically... It's two men competing. It is an assembly member, going back to our earlier theme, but we also have Hiram Montserrat running, who um, notoriously was seen um, beating, beating his, his partner um, and then taking her to a far-off uh, care facility. Yeah, he drove an hour out of his way when the nearest hospital was something like 15 minutes to get uh, care for her after slashing her face and then dragging her down a hallway. So he's Just trying to, to return precise. to yeah. elected office against Francisco Moya, an assembly member. Um, it doesn't seem, at, well, there was a Women for Moya event, but I don't know. Is there enough of a groundswell right now that you're seeing? Does this, I mean, is this a matter, it, you know? It's very it, disturbing to me that he is running on the, uh, sort of, with the language of restorative justice, saying that everyone deserves a, check, a second chance. Not everyone deserves to hold public office. Mm -hmm. That's actually not this, it cannot be used interchangeably with second chance. You don't well, get to just like go back to your old job. He's not in prison. And by the way, he didn't, let's be clear, he didn't go to prison for abusing his girlfriend. Right, right. He went to prison for embezzling public funds. Right. Yep. That's totally different. And being a public servant is a privilege, right? It's not, a, right. It's it's not, not right. just access right, right. to no. a job. So do you get a second chance at that privilege when you've stolen from the yeah, public? Absolutely not. So, I mean, and you know, the thing is, I just think the audacity 
of someone a who is let's let's leave the the domestic abuse aside just for a moment the audacity to run again after you've stolen public funds right. from your your own citizens your own community and then on top of that as though that's not enough we have on tape a really brutal violent beating and a lie and a cover up and sort of and a you know mealy mouthed apology yeah. and so then to say yeah i deserve to to represent you I don't want to see your face. You're allowed to walk amongst us in our community, in our city. You have served your time according to, you know, the legal system. However, you stole money from your community and you are a, a very sort of well-documented partner beater. Like, you are a, a perpetrator of for domestic job. violence mm. and you're highly unqualified. And the fact that we even have to see your face on a, like, in this whole conversation about running is really deplorable. And, like, really hijacking the language of restorative justice is yeah. such a, an insult. Uh, that That's... And so opportunistic and embarrassing. Well, because the thing is, but so many people who hold elected office, not all, but I said many, um, don't see this as, like, you're a public servant. And this is a fundamental privilege that you get. If you read the Constitution of the United States, read the Constitution of New York City, like, it is a privilege for you to represent the citizens of New York City. You don't get that privilege if you've stolen from us and we have you on tape slashing your girlfriend's face and dragging her down a hallway. So you've fi lost it. final thoughts here as we approach, we're now exactly, I think, a month from primary day um, and then we have another stretch. Is there anything we should be looking at, final thoughts, in terms of what matters around this city election cycle with what we're talking about here around for lack of better terms, you know, identity politics and representation in government. Um, are you looking forward to something in particular? I, I'm looking forward to seeing how Albany deals with the fact that they, Cuomo and the IDC have co-signed taking away power from Senator Andrew Stewart, Andrew Stewart Cousins. And I think that there are a lot of people, men and women, who have been very silent and not actually supported her leadership. And because of that, the citizens of New York State have actually suffered. So this conversation with Daniel Loeb, I mean, you know, who cares what he said? I mean, he's just, he's he is who he is, and it's a stupid statement that he said, but I think the larger background to that statement and the fact that he felt comfortable saying it, writing actually writing it, and the audacity of him doing that, um, I think it's curious to see the people who have spoken out against it and those who are silent. Uh, and how Senator Stu Stewart Cousins will sort of move forward with this fractured party that's been co-signed by the governor and many other sort of white politicians and female politicians as well. Um, like like Chrissy, I'm also thinking a lot about the state. For, for That's where I think um, so many of the stakes really are. Um, and so I'm thinking about the Reproductive Health Act and going into 2018. We still have abortion in the penal code in this state. It's a 50-year-old law. And, you know, until recently, most people felt pretty lackadaisical about that because nothing was going to happen to Roe v. Wade. But we have a president now who's pretty clear that he's going to appoint justices who will overturn it. So that's a real problem, and it relates directly to Chrissy's point about the governing coalition in the Senate, which is co-signed by the governor, that empowers Republicans who have no interest in revising the law. So. Um, I would say that's a pretty significant issue in, in New York State. Choice is a um, is a uh, a number one voting issue, and I don't know how the governor is going to circle that square going into his own reelect. So either you get it done, or you have a lot of explaining to do. 
Well, we will leave it there. Thank you to Dr. Christina Greer and thank you to Alexis Grinnell for joining us. Thanks, Thanks man. man.